Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about continuous world building. Today we're talking to Sterling. How's it going, man? It's going well. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, glad to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, like about how long you've been running games and specifically how long you've been running your own homebrew world. Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, I started playing D&D back before... I really understood how it all worked and just thought the monster manuals were cool and the magic items were cool uh, in rule books back in like middle school. Uh, but when I really started actually playing with proper rules, uh, that was probably about uh, 2011 is when I started really diving into things. Uh, and I started weirdly enough with fourth edition. Same. Uh, and then uh, very quickly, uh, our group, this was like back when fourth edition was first coming out and our, our group was like, Hey, let's give it a shot. And then a lot of the more experienced players are like, let's go back to Pathfinder, which we've been doing before. Um, and then, so we switched over to Pathfinder and that system really clicked with me. And uh, I started running games out of Pathfinder uh, and then that ended up evolving. And now I kind of switch between Pathfinder or fifth edition based on uh, the particular desires of basically the people I'm playing with at the time. So that's kind of my history with the game. Uh, and I've been building a continuous world from all of my campaigns ever since. And that is what we're here to Alrighty. do. Alrighty. So I think the the first question I've got is where th this, this world that you've been working in, I guess, that you've been world building uh, for, for your campaigns, uh, where did you, what was the impetus? What was the idea that kind of got the this world started? So... All the campaigns that I had done previously, which had been mostly DM'd by other people, were all in small, like self-contained homebrew worlds. Uh, and that's something that I started thinking was just like the norm, and it super duper isn't. But that meant that when I started DMing, that's something that uh, was very important to me. I had to make my own world. I had to uh, really put myself into this. Uh, and it wasn't until like probably a couple of years after I started DMing that I started realizing just how good a lot of the pre-made stuff is. But at that point I was already so it, it deep into it that, and I just had so much fun building the world um, that it ended up uh, being, being something that uh, I kept fleshing out and just building up to kind of the, the, the big monstrosity with nine years of history that it is now. Um, I've had an absolute blast uh, with the stuff I've created, but at the same time, uh, as we'll talk about, uh, some of the stuff actually in my worlds uh, does come from some some outside sources. Uh, for example, um, there's a module in Pathfinder which has the city of Riddleport, and it's a hive of scum and villainy. And it's got uh, at the center of town there's the Golden, Golden Goblin Gambling Hall, run by Lawrence Van Kaskerken. Uh and that I just kind of copy pasted into my world, and that's just a city in my world. Uh, but over time, it's fleshed out and become its own thing separate from that. But it just my my experience with using a lot of other modules has kind of bled into my world here and there. Uh, but at the core, my world is still definitely very much my own. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually. I think it's a really important thing to understand as a DM that like you can 
use other modules and fit them into your world and just change names or even just take the area that they're set in and put like introduce into your world and eventually if when you run a setting long enough it'll become your own absolutely absolutely and that's something that i kind of want to emphasize here is that just because i really like that continuous world building experience where i'm always uh kind of kind of building the bridge as we're crossing it a lot of the time i really also like a lot of the stuff um that's that's pre-made out there it's it's really good quality stuff these guys are professionals that make these kind of things uh the classic forgotten realms uh stuff is incredibly deep and complex and has all sorts of lore and flexibility so i'm in no way trying to dunk on people who use the pre-made stuff that stuff is phenomenal um and I'm always delighted when I find something from that that I can uh, very easily work into my world because it just means that, oh, hey, there's this fun module I can work into my world pretty seamlessly. And I'm not going to object to that. One of the things that I'm kind of curious about, because I when I started DMing, I, I basically started with the beginner's box and I ran that for two groups. And then I started working on my, my own world to run a campaign in and... I think from when I started, like I actually put pen to paper and started writing down details to when I started running, it was probably, say, I want to say like a month, two months of just Mm -hmm. world building, figuring stuff out, figuring out. It's something that I kind of learned after starting doing this podcast was I kind of dived into the deep end of world building and started, like I built a pantheon, I made a world map, I did way too much work. Um, it's had some benefits since I've, uh, since I started running the campaign, but I also realized that I could have done a lot less work. Um, how much did you, like when you started, uh, building your world, how much, what did you start off with? Like what, what particular piece of the world did you start with and how much, how much work did you put into that, um, before moving on to something else or before even just starting the campaign? That's actually a really good question. I I know so many friends that when they create their first campaign, they go headlong into into massive like they we were talking just before the show about my little lore encyclopedia and it's pretty bite-sized compared to some of the stuff that people put together before a first session even happens. Uh it like people will dive into the deep end and make massive worlds and that's always fantastic to see, but a lot of what my world got grown out of is not even knowing that this was going to be a continuous world. Uh, this came out of me wanting to give my players a lot of freedom. I would we get together for session zero uh, for some of my early campaigns before it was really established that this was kind of the same world and all of this was happening, building off into each other. Before that even happened, uh, I would get together session zero and be like, guys, I'm still kind of new at this, but let's figure out what kind of characters you guys want to run. Let's figure out what histories your characters have, what gods they worship, what regions they're from. And let's see if I can just work that all into something and I'll staple it all together and fill in the cracks as needed. Uh, when... And that ended up expanding between campaigns and it ended up kind of piecing together from that. And that's when it started kind of having some pushback almost that my uh, players have always enjoyed uh, tinkering with. Um, being able to build characters that fit the world is something that a lot of players really like. But a lot of my earlier players wanted to have more influence on the world itself in their character creation. That's where a lot of this grew out of. So when it comes to letting your players define, helping you define some of the world that they're going to be playing in, when it comes to, I think, particularly like history and religion, um, Mm -hmm. were there many times when a player said something about like, oh, I worship 
this god who's part of this pantheon or um you know i'm from this city who has a bad history with this other group of people were there any was there ever anything that either threw you for a loop or it was something that you're like "Mm, that doesn't quite fit the tone of this world let's either figure out how to rework it or can we just drop that yeah absolutely uh one thing that is a big emphasis for me is letting players really express themselves with their characters because i find that sort of that sort of character expression and role playing just so important to the game it's what makes the game so much more interesting uh tabletop role playing is a fantastic thing because of the role playing for me uh the the tactics and stuff are still fantastic and i have a great time with it but I know that these players come to the table with an expectation of being able to express a character. And so when they're building their characters, if they bring up something that doesn't quite fit the world, uh, I'll try to figure out what's at the core of what they're really trying to do. Uh, like if they want this particular God that, that they worship, uh, but it like my Pantheon is actually something that's not terribly well-defined in my world because I want to keep it open. But if they want to add like a straight up Egyptian God in, uh, that might be a little more challenging because that comes with a lot of trappings. If And I might push them towards something equivalent in the classic Forgotten Realms or uh, some of the third-party um, third Pathfinder gods I use a lot as well. Um, but basically, if, if we can work on it and make it fit into the world better, that's great. And a lot of the times, there's little bits of history here and there from previous campaigns I'm able to tie in. So uh, a good example of this was uh, one of my players in my current campaign, uh, her character was uh, kidnapped by this by this organization of assassins. And they, they brainwashed her and turned her into an assassin. And there's lots of baggage that comes with that. And uh, I want to figure out, all right, let's uh, what what is this assa- organization's goals? And she was like, my character doesn't know. She was never informed. I'm like, wait a minute. I think I can work this into a previous organization of assassins from like four campaigns ago. Uh, this this organization of assassins that like was a bit Robin Hoodie. They would kill specifically like politicians that weren't like fitting the needs of the people, and they work behind the scenes to warp the political landscape of the world. What if they got like more corrupt and questionable than they already were, and then they start kidnapping people to uh, to work into their organization? And so, without even her necessarily. Uh, caring what the organization was i was able to tie it much better into the world as a whole and now that's something that's come up that they've discovered this old organization that's just been running for hundreds of years uh from this really old campaign uh and just being able to push them push my players a little bit toward here's what's in my world can we make it work here and every now and then something comes up that just will not work and if that's the case i'll think all right maybe it's not maybe it's not something from this continent uh, maybe maybe this character's from a faraway land. Who knows? Maybe this character's from like a demi plane somewhere. Let's let's see what we can do to work it in because I want my players to be able to express themselves first and foremost. Uh, you actually you just mentioned something that I I want to dive in on a little bit because you said that this your campaign world is is basically just a single continent, correct? Yeah, for the most part, there are actually a few demi planes uh, that keep coming up in the history and the stories. But uh, in in my in in my main like lore encyclopedia that I give my new players, that's not referenced because the lore encyclopedia that I give my players is full of stuff that only my players' characters would know normally. Right. So if they are just an average citizen of the world, what do they know about all of these locations? Well, they know about all these people, etc. So they wouldn't know about these particular demi planes where it's a monastery of 
monkey people, monks, Venarans, uh, that are all run by a dragon that are uh, said to train until the prophesied day where they need to come and save everything. Uh, it still has yet to come. Like, that's not something the average person would know, although it is a, a kind of important, like, key aspect to the world in a way. Right. So I guess the, my question is, what made you decide to focus on just a continent rather than an entire world? Because that was kind of the mistake that I made was that when I started uh, putting together all of this, the, the world building for the campaign that I was doing, I sat down and made a world map. Like I knew where all the continents were. I knew uh, a little bit about each of them like I, I had some vague ideas about what was happening in all of these different continents and i fleshed out some of them a little bit more because they might have an impact on the campaign i was about to run which was set just on a single continent when after having talked to some people and have having done this podcast i realized i could have done uh what you did i could have just created just a single continent and left the other parts of the world uh not filled in on the world map, you know, here be dragons kind of thing. So what what was the decision, or do you remember what why you made the decision to just do a continent rather than to flesh out an entire world? That's a that's actually a really good question. I think the there wasn't really an active decision. I think that kind of helped me out in the long run. It was more just I need to build something for this this group of like new players and I don't know what we're gonna be doing. Let's see what kind of characters they want to make. Let's make like a pocket world for this. And oh, what if I added that on to this other campaign I'm doing later uh, and staple that on there? And oh, what if I stapled this other piece on? And now I've basically got a small world and it expands occasionally. But uh, just having having the boundaries poorly defined about where kind of the edge of the campaign world is allows you to add things in very easily. It adds, allows you to add things in very, very organically. So if... If I needed something that's not in my world, I might be able to just put it on a continent across the sea. I might be able to put it in one of the areas of my world map that maybe isn't super well defined. Um, I may be able to put it on one of these islands that just doesn't have a whole lot going on on the map, but I could easily fill in something. Uh, and I think that I think that so many people have such a desire to create this complete thing, and I feel like oftentimes that can get in the way of creating the right thing for your campaign. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult balance because you want things prepared, but at the same time, uh, when you're constantly wanting to maybe throw curveballs at your players, if you, want, uh, if, if you want this campaign to feel very distinct from previous campaign, but still be in the same world, that can be hard if you have everything very clearly defined and you don't have a good spot for that. Yeah. Uh, so while this wasn't something that I like tried from the outset, it ended up being hugely integral to my world that I not define everything at all times. Yeah. It's definitely something that I've run into is that I've, I, well, I finished up the first campaign and I've been trying to think of like, okay, what am I do for going to do for this next campaign? That's going to be set in this same world. And I'm realizing like ever after talking to people and looking around, like there's some ideas that I don't think that I can make fit because it's, it's kind of the irony mm -hmm. of having created an entire world is that there are, because I've created this entire world and I've got continents all mapped out and I have, you know, a basic history mapped out for each of these continents and what kind of cultures there are is that there's no, I mean, I could try to fit 
a new race into an island that maybe nobody's uh maybe nobody's found it or nobody's gone there in a couple hundred years and a civilization has flourished Mm -hmm. but there's not there's not a lot of room left in this world for new things and new ideas i mean there's still room for lots of different kinds of stories with the cultures and places that i've already thought up and there's still blank places on all of these continents that i don't know what's there yet but because i i feel like sometimes that because i've already figured out so much that it's walled off certain areas of exploration when it comes to world building Oh yeah, I super get that. Uh, that's something that a lot of a lot of my friends who built the worlds have run into, who kind of dove in headfirst and built everything at once. It's wait a minute, I don't have room for this one cool thing. And if you find yourself in that kind of situation, which again more common than you might think, where you have this great idea but just doesn't really organically fit in the world you've got, um, if you're not afraid of interplanar travel and all the trappings that they that might bring for your party. Uh, I really like using demi-planes for that kind of thing. So uh, there, there are a few notable demi-planes. So just a demi-plane being a, a small plane that doesn't isn't as big as like the plane of fire or the ethereal plane, but is more like a pocket dimension. Uh, I really like using those for kind of bottle episodes that wouldn't really work well elsewhere. So for example, I'm actually, my current party uh, that I was actually DMing for earlier today, they're currently in a demi-plane. Uh, that was designed as a prison for a Dracolich thousands of years ago by the Great Dragon Council that sealed him away. Uh, but he's slowly weakened the barriers around this prison that have, that's allowed basically uh, wayward interplanar travelers to get stuck in there with him by mistake. Uh, so basically this whole city has grown out of these interplanar travelers that have just gotten accidentally stuck uh, in these little holes he's built in his prison. So the party ended up getting stuck here, and it's a whole city. Uh, that's has an unbelievably diverse culture because of just how many different types of beings are traveling between the planes and it's all run by a hive mind and i've had a blast designing this but this kind of crazy pocket just wouldn't work in in my main world so a lot of the things that just absolutely cannot fit in your world i like using demi planes because you can have a lot of pocket and like bottle episodes almost happening in a demi plane that is completely unrelated or just very distinctive from the world that you have built. That's, I think, a really cool opportunity D&D lends to, lends to like these kind of worlds is you can always, interdimensional travel is always a thing. You can always add it mm-hmm. or, you know, work with it. Uh, I also wanted to say, uh, kind of more in response to Sean, like the, I think an, another important question to ask yourself about world building, if you have everything figured out, is to think about how much your players actually know about it. And like, you know, if there's this country over here that you've already figured out what it's going to be like, but nobody's asked anything about it, nobody knows anything about it, nobody's from it, you can always change it if you can make it fit. That's true. That's true. If if you've planned something out, but the players never saw it, then it doesn't matter. As far as they're concerned, it doesn't exist. Um, They might have heard rumors about it, but you can just toss it if it's just not going to work or you need something else, as long as your players just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, because like I was just thinking about a, a previous episode, uh, actually, a just previous episode, literally, is uh, we were talking about um, home homebrewing monsters or reskinning creatures so that you have something that fits more with your campaign. We ended up talking about two things that I'd like to turn into probably just small mini campaigns or something. But one of them was like reskinning zombies, but they're... Um, like Last of Us fungi uh, cordyceps zombies. Mm. 
And like, that's something that I could fit into the world that I've created. But the other one is reskinning the formids, the ant people from the monster manual, reskinning them as bee people and having them being attacked by a giant wasp because that's basically because we're talking about uh japanese hornets japanese hornets which so you basically have a different kind of dragon but it's only a dragon to this specific people that Uh, sounds fun yeah Uh, i can't wait to listen to that episode (laughs) but it's not something that i like that's one that i'm like i don't know where i would fit this because it's a whole it's a whole new race of people it's a whole new culture like is it something where they've been hiding in a mountain maybe somewhere and they've just recently made contact with the outside world but it's it's one of those things where it's like yeah i've kind of made it harder for myself to introduce this concept into the world that i've built because i've like i said i've already done a lot of figuring out mm-hmm Moving on, though, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask was, has it been like just a single long campaign or have you been doing like you'll do a a campaign that's a couple of months and then take a break and do another campaign that's a couple of months? Like which which one of those is it? Uh, Usually my campaigns last about a year. It depends. It's usually somewhere between six months and two years. Uh, And sometimes I'll have different campaigns overlapping. Uh, usually I make sure it's very clear where in the history they lie, and if, if there might be some historical conflicts, I make sure they're on opposite sides of the world map. Uh, but for the most part, it's been at least one campaign going on continuously since about 2011 in my world. Uh, okay. Granted, earlier campaigns, it wasn't as clear that it was one continuous world, but I was slowly able to piece them together and get some like fun recurring villains and stuff. Uh, but it's always with, uh, it's always, it's not always with the same group. Uh, I've got a few players who have played a lot of campaigns in my world, uh, but I've I've also played with a lot of people. There's probably been probably close to 15 different players that have experienced my world in one of my campaigns. And it's it's just always a blast bringing new players into the campaign, into the world, letting them figure out kind of the ins and outs, uh, figure out, oh man, there's this cool city here that I really like the concept of. I'm going to make a character that comes from here or if they've got something new to bring to the table in character creation, just being like, Hey, I want to be a Royal from this city. I'm like, well, hold on the city. Uh, the city previously had monarchy, but now it's got uh, a democracy going on because of a lizard person uprising that happened. That's an actual thing. Um, so maybe we could have come from this city. Uh, and maybe, maybe we can do something crazy. Like maybe this campaign takes place another 50 years in the future. And maybe uh, this new democracy wasn't working so much, so it collapsed back to a monarchy, and maybe you're part of the new reign here. Um, So there's lots of room to play with everything the players bring to your table. Uh, But again, one of my big focuses and one of the reasons that I like this this continuous world building so much is because it lets the players express themselves. It lets the players bring something new to the table, and it also gives the players something to bounce off of at the same time. Well, I guess my question is really... Uh, because I've I just uh, in November December I wrapped up the campaign my first campaign in this world that I built. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh, it was a long journey. I got burnt out a couple of times, but I managed to wrap it up. Uh, what I'm wondering is when you're looking down the barrel of a new campaign, how do you decide where and when? I think when is what I'm more curious about mm. because I'm. Because basically, like my the my idea for the world that I've built is that it's going to be it's built to be a series of maybe not 
as long campaigns anymore. Maybe like try to keep them less than a year or, Mm -hmm. you know, around that, that year, year long mark. But what I'm curious about is like, how do you decide like, Oh, this next campaign, I'm going to set it, you know, three or 10 or 50 or a hundred years later. And, and how do you figure out what's happened in the interim between that last campaign ending and this new one starting? That's a really good question. Uh, most of the time before I really dive into what I want the campaign to be, I always have my session zero first. We figure out what the players want from their characters. And then I figure out what we're going to actually do for this campaign, which means that sometimes there's there's a gap between session zero and session one a little longer than I'd like, but it allows me to uh, basically tune everything to what these players want out of this campaign. That's, that's always a big focus for me. Definitely not the only way to do things. Uh, I encourage DMs to to put together whatever they want as long as they understand what their players are coming to the table for. That's that's a big rule for me. But um, really, the the big the biggest rule for when it happens is I never go backwards in time. I do not want any sort of time paradoxes happening because even if you tell yourself, oh, that will never happen, the, the players always have other ideas. Uh, when it comes to how far in the future to put it, that's another question. Um, is there something that you actually want out of a big time leap? Do you want it to be? Do you want things to be significantly far enough away from a from a major event? So, for example, uh, my previous campaign before my current one uh, that was that campaign was I think 150 years before this campaign, and the reason I wanted such a big time skip is because one of the cities basically got deleted off the face of the planet uh, by an eldritch being who basically fat man in a theater bumped into the material plane and happened to eat one of the cities by mistake. Uh, not really <laughs> intending to, uh, just as you do D and D. Uh, and because of that massive shakeup of one of the biggest cities in the world, I wanted to make sure that that had time to settle. I did not want that to be a major part of the next campaign. I wanted to feel like the city had, had kind of come into its own again while still having that, that understanding of that disaster still in the minds of some of the residents of the world, but I didn't want that to be a major focus. So it really, it's a matter of thinking about what, what do you want from any sort of time skip? If you don't necessarily, if you're not looking for anything in particular, if you're not looking to explore some idea about how your, your city's politics have changed or anything, maybe consider just like five, 10 years in the future. Um, History happens fast. So don't be afraid that you're, starting things too quickly after a previous campaign and i guess one follow-up question is do you ever feel like the time skips limit what kinds of things you can have as recurring villains because something like Mm. a a dragon it makes sense that yeah it's going to be around for a couple hundred years you don't have to worry but if we're talking about like more uh intimate humanoid creatures like yeah you could have an elf that sticks around for a while a dwarf could stick around for a while but if you've got um something that's a little bit shorter lived but your players like you really want to have it be a recurring villain how do you work with that and the time skips that's a really good question and reminds me of kind of one of the more painful things about having that constantly moving timeline which is that a lot of my favorite uh npcs that i've created over the years have just died like time time has has brought them to their end one way or another uh, and that's happened to a few of my villains too uh, a lot of the times my players are pretty good at making sure that the villains are actually dead at the end of the campaign. Uh, but whenever I do get the opportunity to have a recurring villain, I usually, if I'm going to jump on that bandwagon, I jump on it immediately. Uh, it might not be with the same group, 
so for example, uh, this one returning villain I had was a pirate necromancer named Zrydan, and he was mostly incompetent, but he had a ghost ship and some skeletons. Uh, and boy, howdy, he was he was ready to mess some people up. Uh, and he barely got away. They never found his body in the wreckage after the first campaign, after they brought his flying ghost ship down um, over this horde of zombies attacking a city. Uh, but he did come back in a later campaign with a completely different group because I just needed uh, a villain that wasn't particularly connected to the story, but would still be memorable. Um, he, he was going around trying to collect all the mystical doodads before the party did. So the party basically never met him. They met him like once or twice in the campaign before the conclusion, but they knew that he was, he knew, they knew that he was the villain. Uh, most of the focus on that campaign was a lot of interpersonal stuff and solving a lot of these big dungeon puzzles. Uh, so the, the, that campaign was never really focused on the villain, but the villain still had his moment to shine. Uh, and he was a human. So these campaigns happened pretty close back to back in the timeline. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. If you want a big, long recurring villain, you can always, you can always make something up. Like, uh, he, he got stuck in a, in a time loop or something, or, uh, he ended up, uh, he, he ended up in this, this plane where time moves slower and suddenly he came back. It really depends on your villain. It depends on, uh, who knows? You might just want to make that the crux of your story. This is how this villain survived. And that's a problem for some reason. Like maybe the time loop is distorting time itself and uh, the gods don't want this space-time distortion and they've sent you as the party to go stop him. And maybe if you're doing a high-level campaign or something. But you could always, yeah, you could... time marches on. Characters die. And that, that can be heartbreaking, but you can also see what you can do about that. There's more than... There's more than a handful of immortal NPCs in one way or another in my campaign. It's kind of because of that, honestly. Yeah, and you can always do something a little bit sillier, you know, borrow from inspiration from Terry Pratchett or something. Have a have mm -hmm. a gnome who keeps showing up over the years, but it turns out that you're just like one party is fighting the great 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 grandson, and then the next party is fighting his great 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 grandson. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that could be a blast. Um, <laughs> Or you have a, a really long-lived bad guy that's just like likes a particular type of henchman and just makes sure to always either find or brainwash the perfect the perfect dwarf into being his henchman, and so it always seems like it's the same person. That sounds like a blast. Like those are the kind of ideas that you can just run with. But uh, yeah, it, it's there's not a ton of recurring characters in my campaigns for too long. It might uh, NPC might last two or three campaigns and then. Uh, time got him uh, but again there's a handful of immortal NPCs that I've got that pop up occasionally but you gotta be very careful with those you don't want it to feel like every NPC is immortal you gotta be able to let go of a lot of stuff you gotta be willing to let your world change uh, I find that that's actually a big part of continuous world building is if something big happens let it change the world that can be huge that makes the players that were part of that campaign feel special about something that, ha that happened in their campaign this actually brings me perfectly into the next question I want to ask you, because uh, we've talked about NPCs kind of rolling over from one campaign to the other, but how do you deal with the legacy of the, the PCs that have mm. existed in previous campaigns, especially when you have those same players in the next game? Because like, I know some players are very precious about what's happened to their character after something's ended, which is absolutely reasonable. And it so it can be... because difficult to have them show up if they're still alive or establish how they've affected the world or be misremembered in song yeah so oh, how yeah. do you how do you handle 
the player characters between campaigns and like the effect that they've had on the world. So that, that kind of comes down to a lot of my philosophy about building a campaign. Uh, a lot of my campaigns come down to there's a big problem. And for some reason, only the party that we have here can solve it. Uh, and usually as an incidental of that, uh, a lot of the times the player characters don't get remembered very clearly. Uh, is Because oftentimes it's something that happened like in the background of history. And even if it happened in the foreground of history, uh, maybe it was the work of a large organization that the, the player characters end up being the final blow for. So maybe they're not as clearly remembered as that organization. Granted, there are plenty of instances where things that the players have done have impacted the world, and you can't ignore that they did that. Uh, a lot of players do care a lot about how their player characters are remembered. You're absolutely right about that. And some players do want to carry on their players, their characters to another campaign, even if other players want to switch characters. And if you do something like that, you got to make sure, all right, what's the lifespan of whatever race you are? Let's see if we can work with that within the timeline here. Uh, I always give my players the option to play previous, uh, previous uh, player characters, I just want to make sure that it'll work with whatever I'm planning first. Um, but when it comes to how they're remembered, that that comes down to at the end of a campaign, I always make sure that we have an extensive epilogue. We have lots of time to discuss what is the legacy of your character. Now that this is over, what happened to your character next? So, for example, that town that got deleted off the face of my, my uh, continent last campaign, one of the main characters was from that town. It was from that city, and it was a huge, like, devastating thing for her emotionally when that happened. So when the the big Eldritch bubble finally got cleared, and and the city uh, was restored to at least not being trapped inside an Eldritch being's influence, uh, her character decided to work incredibly hard to rebuild this town. So hard, in fact, that we decided that she ended up running for mayor and becoming the mayor of this town. And she made sure that this town got restored to its former glory, which was really funny because this town was Riddleport, which is the which I mentioned earlier was the town that I kind of stole from an old Pathfinder module. Uh, and part of me choosing Riddleport to delete off the map uh, was me trying to distance myself a bit from that original uh, module. And my player my players loved it so much that they fought tooth and nail in the epilogue to basically make this city the same city again. And it was a delight. Like I, I'm, I don't even mind. It was it was really fun watching how much they care about this city, um, and just being able to say to the players, "You are the reason that this city exists as it does in this this way." Uh, that's that's huge, and that means so much to those players. Being able to go back and say, "Oh yeah, we're back in this city. Let's see how my player character did rebuilding this city that got deleted." what happened next and uh we work out some of that in the epilogue but a lot of it comes down to like tires hitting the pavement when you actually get there and sometimes if the player who who did the big thing is in the party at the time i might ask them hey uh how would your character have handled this let's let's work that into this on the spot uh what did your character restore the gambling laws to how they were or something along those effects could we actually get them uh, get the party to go to a gambling hall or was that one gambling hall that that's no longer there the only one that was ever allowed to exist and therefore we can't go back or something to that effect there's there's a lot to play with there um, and it really depends on your players a lot so one of the things that i was curious about is talking about 
you know, if, if you have a, a player who, after one campaign, they want to play the same character in another campaign, and for the sake of our argument, let's say that they're a longer-lived species, like a dwarf or an elf or something like that, mm-hmm. what do you do when the character at the end of a campaign has reached, say, level 10, and the next campaign you want it to start as a low-level campaign, like level 2 or 3? What What do you do in those situations? That's interesting. I think that I think that if I was really focusing on that when I was when I'm putting together my campaigns, I might just have to talk with that person and say, "Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Uh, how can we work on this? Uh, how can we get this to work in a way that satisfies both of us?" But a lot of the time, because a lot of my philosophy in DMing comes from putting the players and what they want out of their characters first, uh, I might not even be fully decided on what level we are as a party. Uh, at the beginning of this campaign until we actually have our session zero. Let's let's discuss it. Let's figure out what people want from their characters. Can we make the campaign start at level 10? Or is this something that we really want to be much lower level? If so, let's let's talk it out. Let's figure this out. Uh, maybe you can be playing like that character's kid or something uh, who's like new to the world because who knows, we've got some time skipping going on. Might as well, we might be able to work on that. There's There's a lot of ways to address it, but I think that my particular DMing style kind of just avoids the problem in the first place. Um, but again, I understand that, that is not for everyone. Being able to put so much up in the air until the end of session zero, that that can be really tough for a lot of people. And I definitely understand that. And actually, one last thing. I was curious if you've ever had something like, say somebody's playing an elf and in one campaign they decide, oh, I'm going to play as a ranger. And then they come back for a campaign that's set a hundred years later and they're like okay i'm now a level one fighter because my elf got tired of being a ranger (laughs) that's that's tough i think i think again that would come down to let's figure out what it is that you really want from this character maybe maybe you want something that's similar to your old character but clearly if you want to be like a a fighter or something maybe maybe that's something that uh we can work on maybe we can work this into a different character maybe we can work this into descendants away from the same region um and it, it a lot of it comes down to negotiating with your players in session zero. Session zero is so important for my particular style of DMing. Um, and I, I love your guys episode on session zero because there's, there's a lot of good stuff covered there and I cannot recommend doing a session zero before diving headlong into this kind of stuff enough. It's so useful. So one, one thing that I'm curious about is when, when you're running campaigns in a world where you're covering, you know, you've got a couple hundred years of history um, through all the campaigns that you've done. Um, what method do you use to just keep track of all the various bits and pieces? Cause you sent us over that document that the players get to see that um, kind of condensed uh, world history and important locations and all that. Uh, like what tools do you use to keep track of this? Like, do you just have a Google document that you're continuously updating or adding, or do you have, a whole bunch of Google documents? Do you use something like Microsoft OneNote? Like, what are the tools that you use? So I'm terrible at this. I'm going to tell you up front, I'm pretty good at remembering things. And my players are pretty forgiving and also good at remembering things. So (laughs) overall, this is something that I've gotten very lax at because of that. However, uh, I do all of my session notes on physical notepad paper. I got just a whole pile of legal pads from previous sessions and campaigns. Uh, And that's kind of my log. I do have some notes written uh, in 
kind of scraps here and there in little notepad files in my D&D folder on my computer. But uh, I'm not going to lie, I go through that pile of uh, legal pads way more than I probably should. I really should compile all the background stuff that the DM knows, but maybe the players don't, uh, into into some big Google Doc like I do for the main uh, lore encyclopedia. But because nobody's looking at it, I've never really had the impetus to. <laughs> Uh, and whenever it's almost bitten me, I've managed to find the one scrap of note that actually tells me what the name of that one important character was. So I'm terrible about this. Do not follow my lead by any stretch, please write more comprehensive notes. I highly recommend it. And I, I, as a follow-up, although I think I kind of know what the answer is, because this is something that, uh, I've wondered about when people say that they have a campaign that's they have a single world that they've been running campaigns in for a long time. And it's actually something that somebody asked me uh, after I told them about the world that I've, that I created was, have you thought about putting stuff together into some kind of campaign setting guide or like uh, using one of the adventures that you ran and putting together a small module or anything? I actually have thought about that. There's been a few like recurring bits that have been so fun to put on that I have very strongly considered making small modules. Uh, so, for example, this one there there's this one session that was actually I was a player in this session, uh, and uh, we had a session where we had to go through a gnomish underground subway system, and none of our characters knew gnomish, and all of the gnomes were cantankerous and refused to speak common, and we had to navigate the subway system to get to a place that we weren't even sure we had to get to, while trying to argue with these gnomes in languages that it was terrible language barrier and navigating a foreign subway and it was hilarious and so i took that idea and i basically added an entire underground gnomish subway system in my 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 city of orna uh, i didn't even say what my world's name my world is named calderas um but uh the city the southern uh coastal city of orna above ground it's it's like an elvish coastal city very very nature heavy and underground it's a big uh, industrial gnomish city uh, and there's a big subway system in there now because I thought that one session that my friend ran was so hilarious. Uh, and I will occasionally bring up that map and throw it at players whenever they end up in Orna's underground subway system because no player ever picks Gnomish as their language. And it's very funny to watch them struggle through it. Um, and you can do fun things like if you're... Uh, when when I ran that session, uh, I, I did a really fun thing where uh, it was all digital. So uh, I had a bunch of players uh, roll... Uh, strength checks to see if they could resist the crowd pushing them out of the subway uh, because they all just walked in without letting people out first, like like terrible people do. And they a lot of them failed, so I actually split up the voice chat and split up the Roll20 rooms. And the people who <laughs> failed the check ended up in a completely different Roll20 room, and they ended up having to try to both navigate separately to the same, uh, to the same subway station. They weren't even 100% sure was the one they had to get to. So like that session was an absolute blast and I've loved every sort of variant that uh, my buddy and I who originally created the session or have like come up with for this idea. And th like those kind of sessions that work so well and feel so fun to put on, absolutely. I would love to actually sit down and make a module for that someday. Uh, have I done so? Absolutely not. But if, if enough of the people here bug me on Twitter, who knows, I might, we'll see. One thing that you mentioned is, is handing out... Um... You said that you you had a map that had you know the stations labeled in in gnomish. Have you ever found that you've you created something like a a map or a, a 
piece of a puzzle or uh, like a little bit of flavor, like I say, like a poem or a bit of a song and for one campaign and then realize that you could use that like for a campaign that was set 50, 100 years later and how like maybe it's not the full map anymore because it's, you know, it's faded or it's been torn or burned or something like that and been able to use that um kind of and maybe like winking at the players who were there for for that campaign when it was initially running um but like basically have you ever any of the props or things that you've made for previous campaigns have you been able to reuse any of those uh bits and pieces uh nothing nothing too dramatic um but uh kind of the thing i reuse the most is npcs and basic like city cultures and stuff but yeah absolutely there there are bits and pieces that uh, for example, there's um, a, re- a really good example of this is there's an entire city, an elvish city out to the west uh, in the mountains bordering the desert. And uh, yeah, all the, all the famous uh, mountain elves <laughs> are, are there. Uh, and that city used to be like the shining city on a hill, beautiful, pristine, uh, clean city. Uh, and an evil organization had, had a big underground base there that when the players uh, came to... Uh, came to investigate and throw some wrenches in their plans, uh, they hit the self-destruct button, which collapsed the entire city into a big crater. And the city got rebuilt in there. Uh, basically, long story short, don't live in cities in my world. Terrible things happen to them. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that kind of thing. They've if Players have gone back to that city, and they've they've been able to, like, see, yeah, no, there's there's big craters. It's, it's just a big indented... It's an inverse of the mountain it once was. Um, and they're able to uh, see that there's still uh, one of the campaigns that was closer to that event. They were still able to see a lot of areas of the city where uh, things were still being rebuilt uh, because the the campaign was only like 25 years later or something. So there's there's still definitely scars of a lot of the events previously. A uh, super early campaign of mine involved uh, the big bad getting an evil artifact that controlled dragons and he used it to try to take over uh, the the main capital city. And because he did that, uh, one of the things he did was he made a lot of big ominous spires that stretched high into the sky out of the ground to give like this nice ominous feel and also for the players to be able to fight on top of something dramatic. Uh, and those spires are still part of the arch- are still part of the landscape of the city to this day. Um, and they, they just a lot of the things that happen in these campaigns and end up kind of being this this set dressing that gives so much more flavor and uh, such such a more like lived in feeling uh, to the history and to a lot of these places, um, and that's the kind of stuff that I love the most about world building is those sorts of callbacks, those sorts of uh, nods to the players' previous events. So I think we're starting to get towards the end of our time here. Um, mm-hmm. I just have a quick question before we get into the final our final question for you is uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on about continuous world building that you think is very important or very useful for somebody who's about to start doing that to know? Uh, I think I, I I don't I think we covered a lot of very good ground here, and right. I think that the the big things I just would like to reemphasize is one, don't feel like you need to have everything planned out. Uh, work with your players. Your players have good ideas. I promise you. Sometimes they seem like frustrating to work with, but I promise you they have good ideas. Uh, and and allow your players' ideas and actions to really shape the world over time, because that's what continuous world building is all about. And two, you really don't have to do this. It's it's a great exercise. It's really fun to have those sorts of callbacks. But if you just want to use modules, 
that stuff's built by professionals. Don't be afraid to use that kind of stuff. I only started this because I didn't know any other way. Uh, and I just ended up liking it a lot. But if I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't be surprised if I did modules for a lot longer uh, or for like a significant period of time before I would even touch continuous world building. And I promise you there would be like no downside to that. I would have only learned good things from working with the modules. So don't feel like you have to, but also like if you do work with your players and don't feel like you have to have everything super well-defined. Other than that, uh, if you have any questions, by all means, shoot me questions on Twitter. We'll give my Twitter at the end. All right. Well, uh, in that case, we've got our final question for you, which is uh, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing, give yourself one piece of advice about continuous world building back when you started doing it, what would that be? God, I think my very first campaign was a complete train wreck, uh, as, as is probably something relatable to a lot of DMs out there. And I think the best advice I could have given is... If you build something in your world, don't expect that your players have to see it. Don't force that into the campaign. Let your players explore what they enjoy in your world. Because that's going to be where all the fun is, I promise you. I think that's a really solid piece of advice for any DM, actually. So Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, trust me, it, it would have helped me a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I'm just thinking about the way that I ran my campaign at the start and kind of towards the middle as well was I, I knew there was a lot of cool things in this world. And I, I spent most of my time trying to figure out how can I steer this campaign over to this region of the continent so I can show them this cool stuff rather than just focusing more on telling a good story with the players. Yeah, man, let the players guide you. And who knows, maybe you can put some of your fun stuff that you've planned elsewhere over wherever the players end up. Uh, it's it's not worth it to try to force your players into the fun stuff when you can just put the fun stuff where the players are, or use it in another campaign. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if if you have if you have a really good idea that for some reason didn't make it into a campaign, that just means that you've got a lot of your work taken care of for the next campaign. Exactly. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Sterling. Thank you. Um, it's been a delight meeting you guys uh, at PodCon and being able to listen to uh, this stuff here. And I've been having a blast listening to your backlog. Thank you so much for making such a fantastic podcast. Oh, well, thank, thank you so you. much for listening. Yeah. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, the best place that you can find me is on Twitter. I'm at Cast from Exile. So if there's any Magic the Gathering fans out there, it's again at Cast from Exile. All right. You'll know you found me when you see a Scruff McGruffin is the current tag I think I'm using. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, we hope to have you on again sometime. Absolutely. That would be a blast. Uh, I've been having a great time here. And thanks again for uh, the wonderful discussions. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, thank, every thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh, yeah, that part. Thank you, <laughs> the listeners, all that fun stuff. Bye. Bye-bye. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. 
Hi, I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to find out if you've ever asked yourself why Superman and Batman fight, or why Batman needs Robin in the first place. Get answers to these questions and more in the Everything Economics series about superheroes on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.